This morning I was awakened rather abruptly at 2.30 by a very noisy flock of Canada geese making their way across the sky and hooting into my bedroom. I had been having a dream, uh, I think in which I was debating about the correct way to prepare deviled eggs on Twitter with Chastin Buttigieg. Um, I don't really know what to make of that, so I'm just going to throw that out there, make of it what you will. But the geese overhead, who were making this early morning across the, across the sky, felt kind of to me like a, like a blessing, like a benediction. For a moment, I wasn't actually sure if I was awake or asleep. I thought, maybe I'm dreaming this, and Chastin is going to jump out from behind the bed and start tweeting about it. But by that time, I was fully awake, and in that silence of the early morning, the geese were there, I heard them, and then they were gone as quickly as they had appeared. They disappeared as suddenly as they had arrived. Jesus warns Mary Magdalene in this story from John's Gospel, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus is kind of like a Canada goose in this story. He's making his way across the sky. He's got a lot more stops to make on his journey. And Mary catches this glimpse of him in the garden, the one whom she had loved and lost. At first, she mistakes him for the gardener, but when she recognizes him, she must have like reached out her hand to try to grab onto the hem of his robe or something to fix him in place, this body that she has just seen suffer a horrible death. She watched him die three days prior. And for just a moment now, Mary must think, flooded with emotion, oh, he's back. Everything will return to the way it used to be. Everything is going to go back to normal now. But there's no such thing as normal, is there? There's no such thing as normal when you're living what the ancients call the life of faith, the spiritual life, the gospel life, if we want to get churchy about it. Normal is this, it's this myth that we tell ourselves to buttress against the ups and the downs, the trials and tribulations, what the prayer book calls the changes and chances of this life. We know, don't we, deep down, that what feels like normal to us, nine times out of ten, is an aberration. Right? At best, it's temporary respite on what, feel, on what feels like a much longer journey. And yet we cling to them, don't we? These moments of seeming normalcy, these, these shards of the normal life, these memories of a time when things felt a little more stable, maybe before we started to lose things, this echo of a, of a lost Eden that we used to inhabit, even when we know in our rational minds, right, the days that we're romanticizing were not that idyllic. Things have never been normal. The world watched in horror earlier this week as the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris threatened to burn to the ground. For something like 24 hours, we thought maybe it was a total loss, right? This majestic building, maybe the world's most famous church, which has survived earthquake and fire and pestilence and plague and two world wars and revolutions and reformers and Louis XIV's misguided attempt to decorate it. And so what happened, what happens now in our world when something like this takes place, we begin to, to anticipatorily grieve the loss by posting pictures of ourselves in that place or of that place on social media. Uh, if you had wanted to reconstruct Notre Dame based on just people's family photos, you probably could have done it the day on Monday from, uh, from based on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. This is the world we live in, right? We use places and spaces to tell our stories 
college professor of mine wrote that when she posted her own picture of Notre Dame on Facebook. We use places and spaces to tell our stories. And Michelle would know. She has literally written the book. Uh, she's an, uh, a sociologist and has written the book on how we use our physical space to, to kind of mediate our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to our families, to our larger communities, how things and places tell our stories. That's Michelle's whole work. Um, and so all of that kind of got mixed together this week. We use places and spaces to tell our stories, she said, both our profane stories and our sacred stories. And the profane and the sacred got, I think, beautifully, but rather messily, mixed up this week. All of the, the selfies mixing with the pictures of the soaring buttresses, somehow pulling us all together in this slightly dysfunctional stew of human grief that we were all experiencing. The potential loss of Notre Dame stirred up Something really interesting, I think, in many of us. I mean, the building matters, right? It's historic, it's beautiful, it holds all kinds of artifacts and relics of a previous era. But Notre Dame is more than a building, right? Many of us have found that space, or a space very much like it, at a time in our lives when we needed a space to hold us in a particular kind of way. It is sacred space. Spaces like that hold our memories. They hold our stories, they hold our, our connection to the past. For the French people, it holds national identity, a sense of what it means to belong to this larger culture, this thing that has endured for centuries, a kind of testament to human resilience. Nations and governments and kings, Hitler can rise and fall. You can't kill Notre Dame, right? We use places and spaces to tell our story, my professor wrote, both the profane ones and the sacred ones. And sometimes, she said, sometimes it's when we fear loss the most, that the stories most vividly come to mind. Maybe we remember in technicolor when we're grieving. Loss, or the fear of loss, it sharpens the senses, doesn't it? It heightens our need to, to hang on to something, to shore up shards of memory against the tides of change. They have taken away my Lord. That's what Mary says to the, to the angel when she discovers the empty tomb. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary showed up to anoint the body, right? This is the thing that she treasures most in her life now. It represents everything that has been taken from her. If she can't have Jesus back in the way that she knew him, at least she wants to know where his corpse is, right? She wants it fixed. She wants something that she can care for and guard and, and, and take care of. But now even that has been taken from her, right? And after all of the other disciples have fled the scene, Mary is just sitting there distraught. They have taken away my Lord, she says. It's one of the most heartbreaking cries of loss in the whole of Scripture. They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. I don't know where he is. I need a thing. And they've taken away my thing. So no wonder, right? No wonder when Jesus appears behind her, calls her name, when she recognizes the one whom she loved. I mean, no wonder she reaches out to grab onto him. I mean, wouldn't you do the same thing? Haven't you done the same thing? I have. Clung tenaciously to a, a dead thing, a relic of the past, a shard of memory for fear of what might happen if I let it go. We cling to old patterns. We cling to dysfunctional relationships, bad habits, just because they're familiar, right? Familiarity is our security blanket. It's what we wrap ourselves in to keep a changing world at bay. Some of you know that I, I did a little uh, Marie Kondo process in my house earlier this year. 
Uh, I got rid of a lot of stuff, books and clothes and furniture, Ikea furniture from my first apartment, you know, you name it. And the way that Marie Kondo asks you to go through the process of winnowing your stuff is that you sort of do it step by step. You start with clothes, books, furniture, things like that, and you end with uh, the, the hardest stuff, the pictures and the personal mementos, things like that. And I thought I didn't have a lot of that. And I was wrong. <laughs> uh, I'm a pack rat. And, uh, and most of it, you know, most of it was actually pretty easy to get rid of. It was old school papers, and it was pictures of people that I didn't actually recognize anymore, letters, of old, letters from old boyfriends that I was more than happy to see go. <laughs> but then I found, in the pile of all these things that I had kept with me, I found this letter that my grandfather wrote to me in a card when I graduated from college. And I had, I had not actually remembered this letter, although I have a dim memory of receiving it, reading it very quickly, and stuffing it into an envelope and putting it in a drawer somewhere. And that is where it came back to find me. Um, and it was a beautiful letter. My grandfather and I were not close, but we had, a, we had an affectionate relationship. And he was proud of me. He was really excited by what I was achieving. And as I read that letter, that time in my life, and everything that my grandfather represents, rep rep represented, he's dead now, it all came flooding back into my body as I read it, this, this desire I had to make Grandpa happy, to prove myself to him, and this deeper knowledge I had that this deeply religious, deeply conservative man, if he found out what I knew to be true about myself, what I had hidden from him over these many years, if Grandpa knew I was gay, he would not be cool with that. And all of that felt like the subtext of this letter. I have no idea what Grandpa was thinking when he wrote it. But I felt what I felt when I read it. And all of that came back. My deep love for this man who shaped me in so many ways and gave me so much. My fear of disappointing him. My anger at myself for all the ways in which I had let myself get trapped in his idea of what I was supposed to do with my life. An idea of who I was that I knew was a lie that I knew was not true. So do you hang on to a letter like that? <laughs> or do you let it go? I don't know. I'm still working through that. I'm keeping it for now. Because I need this reminder somehow of where I've been and where I hope I'm headed. But there's no going back, right? That was, what I, that was where I ended my time with Grandpa's letter. I remembered what it felt like to be 18 and read those words and think, oh boy, here we go. I remember what that felt like. And then I took a breath and realized, you know what? There's no going back to that person. And all of us who have, who have come to this cathedral today, right? We love deeply. We love complicatedly. We love angrily and begrudgingly. But we love the ones whom we have lost. And we come to this cathedral on a beautiful spring morning. Maybe we're dragged here by our families. Or maybe we're searching for something that we lost along the way, right? There is, there is no going back. And if we think that somehow we can recapture something we've lost in the beauty of this service, I think we are sorely illusioned. We can never return to what was. Whether the thing that we lost was a loved one, a relationship, an identity, a firm conviction in the world's goodness, a simple faith that used to define us. The things that we have lost don't come back exactly in the way that we left them. And our attempts to hang on to them will only keep us mired in grief and pain. That's a comfortable place to be sometimes, because it feels familiar. And so we become prisoners to our past. We become defined by our wounds and our scars. And when the resurrected body surprises Mary Magdalene, right, those scars are still there. 
The resurrected body has not been healed of its scars. There is no reversal of history. The wounds are there, the silent testimonies to what was done, what cannot be undone. But the wounds that Jesus bears in his resurrected body, they don't define the new thing that he is becoming. The resurrected Jesus, in all of these stories that the Bible tells about him, he's never recognized at first. He's always mistaken for somebody else, which suggests to me that the resurrected Jesus is not actually really one body, one thing at all. I think the resurrected Jesus is like a lot of different bodies. I think it's like a whole, a whole community of people who are going about their lives, and in these brief flashes of insight, suddenly we get recognized as the Jesus whom we actually are deep down somehow. The resurrected body that appears in these stories, right? It does all the normal stuff that bodies do. It eats, it drinks, it walks around, it has flesh and bones. But it does weird stuff that my body cannot do. The resurrected body appears suddenly in a locked room. It ascends from a mountaintop into the sky, like the geese that woke me up this morning, right? As soon as you catch a glimpse of it, as soon as you hear it speak, it's gone. And here is the meaning of Easter. Here is the only thing that the church has to say in the face of the incredible loss and the incredible grief that we carry, which is that it is real. The grief is real. And you can trust the new thing that is coming. You can trust the new body. You can't hold on to it. You can't grasp it. It's a strange new existence that comes on the other side of grief and loss. You can't cling to it but you can trust it. Because I think its name is freedom. Its name is resurrection. Its name is eternal life. Its name is love and joy. And that thing is here now. It's in our midst, where maybe before it was up in the sky somewhere, it was up on a wall somewhere, and now it's with us. It's in the room, and it's waiting to be recognized. You do not belong to your past. You don't belong to the pain and the scars that mark your body and wound your soul. You have no allegiance to the stuff that wounded you. You belong to the one who rises. You belong to Easter. You belong to the resurrection. And sometimes it takes great courage. Sometimes it takes a little bit of desperation, actually, to be willing to step out into what is fresh and uncomfortable and new. That is the place into which the risen one calls us. My prayer is that this year, the resurrection finds you in the place you least expect it, and that with enough courage and enough foolishness, you have open eyes and open hands that you may resist the urge to grab it and instead be granted faith to recognize it when it calls your name and then to let it go.